0: Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. All right, good morning, church. Great to be with you. Thanks for being with us, especially to anyone who's visiting or maybe you haven't been with us in a while. Super glad that you're here with us today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. You can grab your Bible and open up there. Today what we're going to be doing is looking at a series of statements and questions from Jesus in a very powerful confrontation that he has with the religious leaders of his day. Jesus is going to be challenged, he's going to be confronted, and then we're going to see him respond with a series of questions, one of which I'm going to say is the most important question a human being could ever be asked. So before you even, again, you can turn to Matthew 12, but don't start looking at it yet, what would you say is the most important question you could ever be asked? Think about that. What's the most important question you could ever be asked? Or what is the most important question you could ever have to give an answer to? You know, we think about things in our life, like, what do I want in life? Where did I come from? Who am I? Where am I going? All these really big, important questions. Today, Jesus, in our passage, is going to confront the Pharisees with a series of questions. And the answer that they gave and the answer that we give today might be the most important question and answer of our whole life. So let's look at our passage today which is Matthew chapter 12 starting in verse 22. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, meaning to Jesus, and Jesus healed him so that the man spoke and saw. All the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, "'It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, "'that this man casts out demons.' "'Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, "'Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, "'and no city or house divided against itself will stand. "'And if Satan casts out Satan, "'he's divided against himself. "'How then will his kingdom stand? "'And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul,' By whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Let's pray. Jesus, we do ask right now for your help. We ask for your help that we would be good listeners of your word, that we would be receptive to what you are saying to us today in your word. Jesus, I want to thank you, even as I thanked you last week, that you met me this week in sermon prep, that you gave me strength, that you gave me some insight, So now, God, I want to also publicly ask for your help, to be able to speak, to communicate clearly. I ask, God, for the people here, Redemption Church, your people who you love deeply, that you would meet us today, Jesus, that you would strengthen our faith. And Jesus, that the preaching of your word would do what you promise it will do, that it will not come back void, but that it will accomplish much. So we ask for your help now, in Jesus' name, amen. If you haven't been with us for a little bit, or maybe you've been out for a while, or maybe if you're just visiting with us today, we've been in a preaching series on the book of Matthew. We've been preaching what we call exegetically, verse by verse, going through every verse, every line, every major passage. And what that forces us to do is you can't avoid the hard things. You can't avoid hell. You can't avoid what Jesus says about sex. What Jesus says about marriage, what Jesus says about demons, what he says about money, what he says about politics. Preaching exegetically both lets you hit everything and forces you to hit everything. So it's been a good study for us over these last several months of looking at Matthew. And what we've been seeing so far in Matthew is that the external opposition to Jesus is really starting to get cranked up. The ante is getting upped. The cross is starting to loom larger. It's becoming very clear that Jesus is preparing to make his turn towards Jerusalem. The battle lines are very clearly getting drawn. The opposition is getting louder. And in this passage today that we're going to look at, Jesus gets accused of casting out demons through Satan. Satan. Okay? But what we're going to see in these accusations and in this healing, in Jesus' response, the way he responds to that actually gives us insight into what his kingdom is actually about. Jesus, it's going to be clear, is bringing a kingdom that the people in his time in his time did not expect. A kingdom they did not anticipate. A kingdom they weren't looking for. And I think the same is true for us. These healings and these accusations against Jesus are going to show us very specific insights into what the kingdom of Jesus is actually for and what it's actually against. But first let's look at the cause. What was the cause, the impetus of this dispute? Look in verse 22. We simply read that Jesus healed a man who was blind, mute, and then he saw and spoke. We genuinely have no more than that. There's no detail of who brought him or what his response was. It just says, here's the guy, here's his condition, and Jesus healed him. But after Jesus does this, the people around him say, can this be the son of David? Is that the question you would have asked? Upon seeing this amazing healing, this demon-oppressed man suddenly healed, whoa, is this the son of David? That is not the question that would have been going through my mind. So why did they immediately conclude that? Why did they ask that question? It's because they saw Jesus taking up the role, taking on the mantle of the one who would be the Messiah. Exorcisms and healing, which is what Jesus was doing, were what the Old Testament had said, the one who comes as Messiah, he will be doing these types of things. If you want, write down Isaiah 42. Exorcisms, healing of the oppressed, these were indicators for God's people that when you start to see these types of things happen, demons being pushed out, people who were dead being raised, the sick, the oppressed being lifted up, that's a sign that God's on the move. So now the people are seeing this and they're saying, wait, wait a minute. Is this the promised one? Is this the one who was supposed to be coming? And I just want us to think about this question. Can this be the son of David? Friends, that question in different forms reverberates throughout the entire Old Testament. Is this the one? Is this the chosen one? Thinking about how that question is echoed in Genesis 3. The seed of the woman is going to come. One day a human will rise who will crush the evil one. One day Fathers like Abraham will not have to take their sons and sacrifice them on mountains because a true sacrifice, the true son is going to be led up a mountain. One day a people enslaved in oppression to evil rulers, like the Israelites in Egypt, one day a real chosen one is going to liberate all of God's people, and then you get to David And he fails, and then his son Solomon, is this the guy? Is this the chosen one? Are you the one who's going to come, or should we be waiting for someone else? Can this be the son of David? Friends, that question is a human question. That's a deeply humanity-bound question, the longing for one to come and make it right. Even outside of the biblical narrative, that's a human longing. Obviously, I'm going to start talking about movies. Is Neo the one in the Matrix? Is Harry Potter the chosen one? Who will restore balance to the force? Friends, all of those echoes in the stories we love are echoes of this question. Is this the one who's going to come? Is this the son of David? All of humanity is looking for one who will set things right. Is this person the son of David? And so the reason they ask that question in one sense is because they saw the things Jesus was doing. But in another sense, he was not doing what they expected him to do. Jesus was coming in as this gentle, lowly prophet who looked more like a shepherd than a king. So could this be the heir to the throne? And so again, even right here, let's just pause. How is Jesus bringing his kingdom into your life in ways that you aren't expecting, anticipating, or if we're honest, even wanting? How is Jesus right now bringing his kingdom into your life in ways that you don't want, ways you haven't been expecting? And I'll be honest with you, it's probably through suffering. It's probably through some type of pain. It's probably through some perplexing questions you are being made to ask. Friends, the kingdom's coming. Jesus is on the move in your life. And the Pharisees saw what Jesus was doing, and they reacted in rage. They began to downgrade, downplay, and literally in this passage, demonize what Jesus was doing. They literally said, let's just tell people this is Satan, and then they'll be like, oh, okay, fully discredited. No. What's crazy is that their accusation, which we're going to look at next, their accusation that this is the work of Beelzebub, it's definitely a lie, and Jesus is definitely going to disprove it. But like all opposition to God, It's actually going to be turned on its head. It's actually going to disprove not only the lie, but it's going to validate and show the power of the real kingdom. So let's unpack this accusation. Healings by Beelzebul, the Lord of the house. So here the Pharisees try to discredit Jesus by simply saying, Hey, let's just tell everybody this is the work of Satan, Beelzebul. People, don't be impressed by him Jesus of Nazareth this prophet that you all love he's only doing this because Satan's working in him so here we have to just do a little bit of background work where in the world does that come from that kind of seems out of left field so let's look at this who is Beelzebub? The name Beelzebul, it's a transliteration from Hebrew into Greek, meaning that the name has taken on some different morphings. It's coming from the Canaanite god Baal. It's called Baal the Prince, or Baal of the Exalted Abode. There's a, a picture of a statue from the 12th century, so that probably would have been around the time of Israel. And in the Old Testament world... What we know for sure is that Satan had control over the pagan nations around Israel. And one of their primary demonic forces that came against Israel was the forces of Baal. And again, little teaser, come back for theology night. We're going to talk a lot more about all of this. But so then that name Baal gets translated into the Greek as Beelzebul, which means Lord of the temple, Lord of the house, Lord of the dwelling. Beelzebul, though, is simply an alternative name for Satan. And interestingly, look at verse 26. Jesus replies and says, Is Satan casting out Satan? Jesus automatically knows who they're really talking about. And so if you remember, Satan, in the biblical storyline, was the one who had taken over God's house, God's dwelling, God's domain, the garden temple. In the very beginning, Satan had come in and taken that domain from mankind. And so now throughout the whole Old Testament, there's this cosmic struggle of the forces of Satan pressing against God's small collected people. All these nations surrounding them all of the time. There's this cosmic struggle throughout the whole Old Testament. And and this is where, again, I think Scott's already laid some good foundation for this in Theology Night. We need to realize the fact that for a lot of us, that grew up in American evangelicalism, a lot of us may be in more Reformed, broader evangelical, Baptist, PCA circles. We don't have a good grasp on this. We don't understand that in the ancient Near Eastern culture, this was just assumed to be reality. The fact that there's a dual universe, that what we see is not all that's going on, they just knew that, whereas in our rationalistic brains, we're like, they said demon. Oh my God, they believe in demons and angels, oh my gosh. Friends, our rational brains, even post-enlightenment, we don't want to think about that, but friends, it's real. It's real. It would literally be like finding out that the world of Stranger Things is real. There are real demogorgons. There's a mind flayer. There are forces at work in this parallel, upside-down world that we don't always see. We don't see the overlap between it. But friends, it's there. And it's on the move. And it's opposing you and opposing me and opposing Redemption Church. So we need to factor that reality in. And then realize that here in this passage, not only is the work of the kingdom called into question, but it's attempting to be sidelined by just saying, that's just Satan doing that. That's just, that's this power. It's just coming from that side. So the people at the time would have been like, whoa, maybe it is just Satan doing that. But again, like all evil intents, God turns this on its head And showcases his own power. Look at verses 25 to 27. Look in your Bibles. Jesus very quickly undoes their logic. He tells them, okay, so if I'm casting out Satan by the power of Satan, uh, what good does that do? If a country decides to go to war with itself, what's it going to profit? If Satan is trying to cast out Satan, he's actually just weakening himself. It gains nothing. The logic of what they're accusing Jesus of makes zero sense. And not only does Jesus first show that, but then Jesus, look at the verse, he goes on the attack. Jesus says, okay, so if it's not by the power of Satan, uh, whose power is it? If I'm not doing this by the power of Satan, then there must be some other power that I'm doing this through. Jesus here, in this question, in the way he responds, he highlights for us. Here's actually what my kingdom is about. Verse 28, but if, I ca- but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus tells them that the true Lord of the house has moved into town and it's not Satan. The true Lord of the dwelling has come and his work of casting out demons is showing people what the kingdom is for what the kingdom is about and how now it is coming in full. So let's look at this. The true Lord of the house has come. In verse 28, Jesus invites his listeners, which we are included in that, to consider the implication of the fact that the Spirit of God is giving power to cast out demons no one doubted the demons were being cast out everyone saw that that was obvious but the only question was the how and the why jesus is saying if this is the spirit of god then there are massive implications jesus opposing satan here shows what the kingdom is actually about It shows us, friends, who the real enemy of the kingdom is. Jesus is saying, demons being kicked out, men and women and children coming to their senses is what this kingdom is about. Because that's what it looks like when the kingdom is present. People are in their right senses. They can hear. They can listen. They can love. They can respond to reality. I mean, let's just think for a second. One commentator made this point. I thought it was excellent. Think about this man's condition. He was mute. He was blind. This is extreme human isolation. This man, in many ways, represents our society so much. The many ways that we, too, we can't see reality. Reality. We can't hear the truth. We cannot speak of what is actually going on in our souls. But friends, this is what the kingdom of Jesus coming means. The kingdom coming means people know how to speak. The kingdom coming means people know how to listen. The kingdom coming means that people know how to rightly see reality around them. Friends, that's what healing looks like. Jesus and his kingdom is opposing the carnage wrecked by Satan, and his exorcisms and healing show us, here's what it looks like when the kingdom's present. Ultimately, Jesus is saying, what you see here is God's rule coming into effect. People think clearly, they love clearly, they see clearly, they listen clearly, they know who they are. That's what it looks like when the kingdom is present. And why is Jesus and his kingdom doing this? Because this true strong man has shown up. Look at verse 29. How can anyone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus uses this imagery of a house that's protected. It's well armed. It's well secured. And a lot of commentators said that this is a picture of like, you know, a person who has a demon. This is a this is a picture of a demon-possessed person, and then a stronger person has to come in and take over the demon. I, I think that could be true, but I also think that verse 29 is actually a summary of the entire Old Testament. Satan was the snatcher. He was the deceiver, the taker of life from the people of God, and he has been holding the world, the house, captive. Adam remember, had dominion over the house, the garden, the dwelling, the temple, but he was tricked and seduced, and the lord of the house, Baal, Satan, has taken over the house. And then from there, the rest of the Old Testament is showing this opposition against God's people. Do, again, think about the Moabites, the Egyptians, the Philistines. All these forces that were being ruled by the demonic forces of Satan were coming against God's people. Throughout the whole Old Testament, Satan was the strong man. He was the ruler of the house. He was the Lord of the dwelling, as his name implies. His palace, as Galatians, you write this down, as Galatians 1, 4 says, his palace is the present evil age. And his goods that he's protecting are the men and women under his evil influence. So what does Jesus say? You can't plunder somebody's house unless you first bind them. And then you can plunder the house. So again, (laughs) Jesus is showing us, here's what my kingdom does. Think about where we've been in Matthew. After the baptism of Jesus in Matthew 3, where does Jesus go immediately after he's baptized? After Jesus has not even started his ministry yet, he gets baptized, affirmed publicly, as this is the one. Where does Jesus go? To start his combat, to start his own carnage wrecking on Satan. And from there, after the temptation in the wilderness, when Jesus overcomes Satan, some people say that was the beginning of the binding of Satan in this age. Jesus proves that the old strong man is already getting bound up. The true Lord of the house has shown up and is reclaiming his house through his kingdom by plundering Satan's kingdom and taking back men and women for the kingdom of the Father. Jesus is the true Lord of the dwelling, friends. He's the true Adam, the true humanity. And what's crazy is that Jesus doesn't just take the house back from Satan, he even takes the name back too. Because where is this going? Where is Jesus going? Even in these healings and in what he's showing us. Where do we ultimately see Satan being bound? Where ultimately do we see Jesus ascend a throne and take a crown and draw all men to himself? It's where we're going very soon in Matthew. We're going to the cross. We're going to Golgotha. Where all of the forces of Satan will seem to have their final victory over Jesus as he is laid to waste at the cross. He was plundering Satan there, friends. And again, we don't want to jump too quickly to the cross. But that's where this is going. The cross is already looming in the background of verse 29. So what we see is that Jesus is showing us what the kingdom of God is about, what it's for and what it's against. And so now Jesus turns to the Pharisees and his disciples and to us, coming full circle, and asks us the most important question which we all must answer. So are you with me or are you not with me? Who is with me? Remember, Jesus is not just coming to spread peace on earth and goodwill towards men and loving kindness to all people. No. Jesus is coming and calling women and men into allegiance to himself. Jesus here draws a very clear line in the sand. Jesus in his kingdom presents a challenge, and that is the need to come to terms with what he is doing and that God is establishing his kingdom. Verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. So, are you in or are you out it's the most important question a human being could ever answer and ultimately all people will have to give an answer to that question notice there's no room for neutrality there's no room for caveats there's no room for i'm cool with jesus this is a clear battle cry this is a rally point jesus here is demanding loyalty so many people today especially my generation and younger we're cool with jesus i mean yeah jesus he's got some good stuff to say i don't really like you know he's he's pretty absolute you know some of his stuff about sex and stuff like that i don't really like that stuff but jesus is all about love and forgiveness so i'm cool with jesus Jesus opposes those people. Jesus is not wanting us to be cool with him. He is wanting our allegiance, which means that all of our life is to be brought in line with his kingdom. There is no room for neutrality, despite what people or culture or other religions would tell you. There's no room for being neutral with Jesus. If verse 22 is true and Jesus really is that son of David that all of humanity is looking for, if he's really the one who's going to set all things right, then he absolutely can make this claim in verse 30 that you're either with me or you're not with me. He says, you either gather or you scatter. If you join with Jesus, that means you're part of the gathering work, calling people into life in the kingdom. The imagery, obviously, is taken from flocks of animals. Animals just do their own thing. Animals will just scatter, and if you are not actively taking part in gathering the animals up, you might as well just be scattering. Jesus is absolutely speaking in absolutes. He defines the absolutes through allegiance to his kingdom. So church, Redemption Church, where are you? Are you just screwing around and following Jesus? Maybe dipping a toe in here and there. Maybe come to a gathering. Maybe read a little bit of your Bible. Maybe, you know, do some Jesus-y stuff. Is it evident in your life that you are in allegiance to Jesus? in your own heart, in your own life? Are you seeking to increasingly bring more of your life into line with Jesus? Or are you just fooling yourself? Teenagers specifically here, or younger people, or younger believers here, where are you at today? You might be sitting your butt here, but where are you? As it relates to your own life with Jesus, are you in or are you out? Like, who do you think you're fooling? You might be fooling your parents. You might be pulling a good charade. But I think Jesus today would want to ask you, why don't you want to come follow me? I'm actually offering you the fullest, richest life possible. Do you think you can get a better offer somewhere else? And maybe some of us are looking for better offers somewhere else. For all of us, I think we need to consider Am I living a divided life anywhere in my life? Any part of my life that is kind of sequestered, like eh, Jesus and his kingdom doesn't really touch this part? As we go to close, I just want to make a couple closing th- points. Allegiance to Jesus and being part of his kingdom looks like resisting darkness. His kingdom is really clear about that. So where in your life are you resisting darkness? Where in your life is there real darkness, evil in speech, secrecy of a divided life, darkness in what you are listening to and filling your mind with, in what you are speaking, in what you are engaging in? This would even include, friends, living in fantasies outside of reality. This would even include suicidal or depressive thoughts. What does allegiance to Jesus look like as it it relates to resisting darkness? There's a lot of darkness. There's a lot of darkness. Another closing implication for us to consider is that Jesus is showing us who the real enemy is, church. The real enemy of the kingdom is not the people on the opposite news channel of you. The real opponents of the kingdom are not the people that you are just ticked off at. The real enemy of the kingdom is not people in your MC who annoy you. The real enemy of the kingdom is not the face of the person on the Bud Light can. If you know what I'm talking about, then you know. That's not the real enemy, friends. The real enemy of the kingdom is Satan and his demonic forces who daily oppose us and try to convince us that all the other people are the real enemy. Friends, allegiance to Jesus doesn't mean that we suddenly become perfect, but it means that we regularly are repenting of where we are not in line with the kingdom and then asking the Spirit To make us more of kingdom people. Of showing us, where have I missed the kingdom, Jesus? Help me repent and move towards you in that. Asking Jesus to give us more of himself, more of his spirit. Filling us afresh so that we can show the world the kingdom's here. It's already on the move. Do you want to be in this kingdom or not? So let's pray. And the band can come up. Jesus, we do ask that you by the power of your spirit would continually fill us again here at Redemption Church. We ask Jesus that you would fill us in fresh ways with fresh expressions and movements of your spirit. Spirit that you would work in ways that we have never seen so that darkness can be put away. So that men and women and children can think and speak and learn and listen and love clearly. Jesus, we ask that you would increasingly use our missional communities and our life there to be the spaces where that growth can happen. Jesus, would your kingdom continually reorient our gaze to who the real enemy is? Jesus, because as we realize who the real enemy is, that means it's so much easier to forgive people who offend us. That means it's so much easier to confront people that we need to lovingly confront. As we realize the real enemy is Satan who is convincing us to hate people, that means that our hatred can melt towards love and compassion and empathy and listening to other people. Jesus, help us oppose Satan where we see him working division. Jesus, would your kingdom come here in redemption, here in Deep Creek, here in Chesapeake, here in Norfolk, here in Virginia Beach, here in Suffolk and Newport News. Jesus, would your kingdom fill this space? And would we be the people whose lives go and picture that kingdom? Jesus, give us wisdom. Give us creativity for how to do this work together, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.